Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode of Investing in Integrity, we were joined by one of finance's icons, Richard Davis, the former CEO and chairman of U.S. Bank, who's now president and CEO of Make-A-Wish America. It would not be an exaggeration to say that Richard's story could be made into a movie. He started as a rank-and-file bank teller and eventually rose to become the CEO of the fifth-largest commercial bank in the United States. Richard has also served as chairman of the Financial Services Roundtable and chairman of the Consumer Bankers Association. And if all of that wasn't enough, today he is also on the boards of several Fortune 100 companies, including Wells Fargo and MasterCard. Richard was one of our first and most passionate advocates for our mission at Scholars of Finance, along with U.S. Bank. He is an advisor, an alpha investor, a mentor to our team, a speaker for our students, and much more. And we could not be more excited to share some of his insights with you directly. This is truly a masterclass on leadership for anyone aspiring to lead and make an impact in finance, whether you're a college student or a C-suite executive yourself. And we hope you enjoy. And now, without further delay, we bring you Richard Davis. Richard Davis, sir, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. This is a highly anticipated conversation. Thank you for joining us. First and foremost, how are you and where are you calling in from today? Thank you, Ross. I'm very excited to be part of anything you're working on and certainly Scholars of Finance. I'm calling you from Southern California and having just come off as, you know, I run Make-A-Wish and we just came off a very important board call. Uh, just moments before we started this. So we're a fully virtual organization now. And so it really matters not where we are, but we're headquartered in Phoenix and that's where you'll find me most of the time. I'm grateful now that our, our chief program officer, Miranda, who lives near Phoenix, brings us out there from time to time. And so we get to see you live much more, which has been a, a total blessing. Yeah, just um, you don't come, you just never come in August, but that's okay, I understand why. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you understand and you don't hold it against Sorry. us. <laughs> Richard, we have so much to dive into, so much to cover. So I'm going to jump right in here. Richard, you have had an incredible career arc. First, can you begin by sharing with our audience your ascent from bank teller to top five financial firm CEO? Can you take us back all the way to the earliest days, your Wizard of Oz days? What were you doing before banking? Walk us through your career from your perspective. I know my story is only interesting to me, so I'll be thoughtful, but let me just say my career would be one of accidental success. And people's parents would probably hate that first answer, but it's taking note and paying close attention to opportunities that were not predicted. And that's the headline. Wizard of Oz is just a funny thing that shows up when you Wikipedia me, and I don't know why it's in there. It's true. I used to be a, my sister was a child actress growing up in Hollywood. My mother asked me to be one as well. I ventured one time into a very significant Christmas time play with the likes of Connie Stevens and Ray Bolger for a two week visit of Oz. I actually nailed it and I hated it and I never did it twice. So that we'll put that off to the side. But <laughs> interestingly enough, I got into banking because I was accepted to the Air Force Academy as a young high school graduate. I just turned 17 
I had worked very hard to get the appointment, which you know requires a couple of years of preparation. And it was all set to go. And then I got a call in the summer, just before I was to start boot camp in Fourth of July week. And the government had decided that year to add women to the academies for the first time, and there are four academies. And in doing so, they reduced the size of each class by 19% in order to cultivate that, think of Title IX, if you will. As it turns out, there were no women for those classes because it takes at least two years to socialize and to cultivate a class. You have to get congressional support and senatorial support. And so I was asked to wait because I was so young. And they figured, hey, he just turned 17, he'll just turn 18, he'll be fine. Except I didn't have any money and I had no ability to get through my next year without going to work. So I worked full-time at a bank and I went full-time at night school and I did that for eight years and the banking crew took off somewhere in the middle of that. And that's the end of the story. But it's one of pivoting. It's one of no martyrdom. I don't know why it happened. I would still love to have been in the Air Force Academy. I would kill to have been a top gun. It just wasn't meant to be. So I embraced what opportunities came along and it was banking and a chance for me to perfect something that I turned out to love. Richard, tell us about the first innings of your career as a bank teller. Those first eight years, yeah. what did you learn from that experience? What happened? What did you envision your path to be at that time? Like, did you think you'd be a CEO one day or were you just doing your job day to day? Yeah, I was trying to get through the bank so that I could graduate with my bachelor's degree and then go on to be a math professor. So that shows you not, no fun of parties. But here's the story I want to offer up. When I was working at the bank every day, there was a woman across the lobby of a bank in a bank they call it the platform even though it's no platform it's where all the lending gets done all the desks are and i'm always on the side with all the teller stations and things and her name is cindy and cindy busby and she walked over to me in my second year so i'm all of maybe just turning 19 working five days a week doing my thing she pulls me aside and says i think you could be great at banking and i said well appreciate that you know i'm working hard here and she goes no i think this could be a career and I let her talk me further into it. And I was able to immediately go on the management training program before I was 21, because she put me there. I could still work full-time days. And this woman is the reason I stayed in banking. And my story for the listeners is, be Cindy Busby. In our lives, we need to look around, look up and say, I see people with potential. I'm in a position at that point in time of some opportunity and authority where I can help them achieve their goals. I should get to know them. I should find out if what I think might work for them will align with their goals. And in this case, it did. And so I was discovered by a wonderful woman who I knew, but didn't know that well, who even to this day, I wish I could find so I could thank her for that. But that was the single biggest lesson learned. After that, it's just hard work and pay a lot of attention to opportunities. I would say I was always known to be the guy to take the next hard assignment. And Ross, I had endless numbers of times as a young 20-some-year-old growing up at the bank where many of my colleagues would take the next promotion and I would take the next lateral that would be less attractive, less interesting perhaps. But I was trying to build this wide foundation of skill because I did think at that time, if I stay in banking, I'd be better to know a lot of things well enough than to know one thing perfectly well. And you think of building a building, the wider the platform and the deeper the foundation, the higher it can go. And it would turn out a little less profound in its living it through, but it turned out to be a really good strategy. So I never really looked for the next promotion as much as takes the next opportunity. When you're doing a favor for someone who then pays you back. Richard, I got to say that that story resonates with me so much. As I've shared with you in the past, I don't know where I would be personally if it weren't for having been discovered by you, by other mentors in my life, by people who invested in me. 
you know, you've heard my own life story. I just feel grateful to be a productive member of society today and be a contributing citizen. And so, you know, you and others have been so instrumental in my own path. So I just want to plus one that on the other side still to this day, right? Where you're now in the one sort of discovering me, discovering us. I still see the power in that. And I think that lesson I'd imagine is relevant today as it was back then. It's so important. You go into the management training program, you get through that, you start taking lateral promotions, start building this, this broad base of knowledge. Tell us more than from there. What was the story from there? What was it like to rise all the way to becoming CEO and chairman of the fifth largest retail bank in the United States at US Bank? I wish there was something so brilliant and profound at this point, but it was working really hard, always going where people asked me to. I mean, all the way up the career. I mean, I did things right up to the end that weren't what I would have predicted, but made sense and they were good development. I'll give you this, when I do coach my own adult children and other people when they ask, I always ask you never to set a goal, just set a direction. Because goal setting is very limiting and you won't even know it until it's too late. But if I were to say to you, let's go from point A to point B, and I asked you, let's along the way, see what's along the way. We might want to stop and see something or discover something on the trip. We won't cheat ourselves with that. If I just have to get to point B as fast as I can, I have no idea what I missed. And if I said in banking, it's an interesting career. People say, I want to be a branch manager by 25. I want to be a senior VP by you know, 35. Wow, is that limiting? Because it's a context, first of all, built today for a future that hasn't happened yet. And it's a context that limits so many options. What about the jobs that haven't existed yet? What about the discovery of the next new idea? If I had said today that I wanted to be a branch manager and I found out cryptocurrency was the next great idea for that bank, and I'm great at cryptocurrency, and I limited myself because I didn't want to be a product manager because I wanted to stay in the branch world, I lose. So studying direction, I want to move forward, I want to move up, I want to get better, I want to get smarter, and I want to contribute more. Those are all good goals, but setting hard, fast directions of speed or directions of endpoint um, would be a mistake. I appreciate you sharing, I would say paradigms, this sort of yeah. segues into a lot of people when you ask this question, you get here's the step I took and then I did this and then I did that. Yeah. I love that you dive right into paradigms. What are some of the values, the principles, paradigms or traits that you think have contributed most to your ascent through the ranks of banking leadership? The first one is actually not a attribute, it's I think smart. And that is, um, and I've learned this to be true, your boss, your direct boss will move four times as quickly in their next job as their boss. So strategically, be known by your boss's boss. So if I were, were you were my boss and you get promoted and I've invested a whole year in you and you love me, but you're gone. And all of a sudden I look up and there's a new you and the boss above you, which won't move near as fast, doesn't know me. That's on me. I need to make sure that I have taken the time to be, I'll say noticeable, you know, not obnoxious, not in your face, but do work that matters to people and allow it to be known by more than the one person that might be directly above you. So that's just strategy, I think. The other piece is our words that, that make a lot of difference. One is integrity. Always, always, always tell the truth and follow through when you say you will. Number two, humility. You exhibited about five minutes ago. When you said, I'm just blessed to be alive and in this wonderful circumstance, you're right. We are very lucky. We are luckier than we are smart and smart enough to know we're lucky. And that's a big part of, I think, <laughs> doing well is being humble and believing it, by the way. And then a word I've come to like less because it's used so much, but I have to use it because it's authentic. Be who you are. Do what you like. Good grief. There are so many things that 
you might be doing that you don't like, and you don't have that limitation. 51% of Americans, the last I tested this a couple of years ago, go to a work with no authority and no mobility. They come to a job, they have to sign at a certain time, they have to take lunch at a certain time, they have to be done at a certain time, and it's probably harder for them to see exactly what they contributed. The rest of us, the other half, have somehow earned the permission to dictate and organize our daily lives and therefore our long-term contributions with the authority that comes with responsibility and to be thoughtful and always give your best. And that's where authentic comes in. Because when you aren't being told what to do, it's what you do when you have the choice that matters the most. And so I would just say the integrity and the honesty and the act of having the humility to realize that we are as lucky as we are anything is very attractive. And as an employer, I have found that that's one of the traits that I look for the most. Richard, as you won't be surprised, I'm grateful to hear that integrity and humility are at the top of your list, being that those are two of our six core values at Scholars of Finance, in part due to your teaching and your mentorship of us as an organization and, and helping us see the importance of those. Another core value that you and I have talked a lot about is compassion. Yeah, This is often as a value thought of, I, I hear from others, as being soft, especially Gen Z, young people, they think, no, they see Wall Street, they see the big short. Finance is cutthroat, sharp-elbowed, shark tank culture. There's no place for compassion. I oftentimes cite you specifically when I talk about compassion. I say, I've met too many leaders like Richard Davis, the former CEO and chairman of US Bank, who are highly compassionate to know that that is false. There is a place for compassion in finance. I think back to when my fiance Maya was diagnosed with breast cancer a few months ago, you and several other mentors, I texted you. I remember this vividly. You stepped out of an important meeting and you called me five minutes later, Richard, as I was in tears, right? And you supported me. You were compassionate towards me. I mean, the compassion I've seen you demonstrate is at another level. Can you talk about compassion the role it's played in your success, the need for it in finance, and how it can and should fit. Yeah, thank you for that. By the way, we're all praying for Maya, and I know she's making great progress. You know, here's the deal. Financial services, it's in the word. We service others. Happens to be financial. Maya's been going to a physician who services her with their medical advice. So we're already servants, and if you're leading, you're a servant leader, and I can get into that for a whole other podcast, but I hope that the audience understands. Servant leadership is not about you, it's about what you can do for others, and in the end, what you can get back. As a sidebar, as I mentioned earlier, I run the Make-A-Wish Foundation with great pride, and it's a remarkable place. But if you ever really wondered if giving is greater than receiving, join me on a wish, because it's prima facie that the child's Giving, getting the wish and the granting is remarkable. You have no idea how powerful it is for the rest of us to be able to grant that wish. Ergo, the financial service provider is helping people get through their life more effectively and more safely. And but for the more raw Wall Street transactions where it's company to company, no real people to people, that's probably a harder one to defend. But when it's you serving others to help their life be better, we now be saving their life, but we're enriching it. And so compassion comes in. I have to know what it is that you're trying to achieve in your life's goals so that I can be helpful to you. I want to give you a quick story. When I used to visit the branches, I like to go unannounced sometimes so there was no preparation and there was no fanfare. I wasn't looking to mystery shop. I just didn't want anybody to really be overly prepared. And I walked into this one branch. It was in Redding, California. I remember 
And I walked in and I always walk over to the teller line first because that's where I started. And it always surprised people because the tellers are kind of the front line. And then I walked my way over to the other side where I told you where they make loans and you know, the desks. And the manager came running over and said hi. And a couple of the loan officers said hello. And then this other loan officer was helping a young couple, maybe you're in Maya's age, and they had a baby in their arms, baby in arms, maybe eight months. And I looked and this bank loan officer was desperate to break the conversation, look up and say hi to me, just from the politics. And I gave her a timeout signal. I said, I'll be back. I mouthed, I'll be back. So I went to lunch with the manager and came back. She was unavailable and I walked over and I said, so tell me what you were doing when you saw me. She goes, I was helping this young couple. And I said, well, what were you doing? And she goes, well, their grandmother gave them a $10,000 check as a gift, which you know is tax-free, for the baby, a little boy, for his college education. I said, oh my God, that's wonderful. I said, you must feel good about that. She goes, I do. And I said, so what ended up happening? And she's told me the rate that she gave them and the term. I said, no, 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 not what product did you give them? What do you think really happened there? And I'll make it quick, Ross, by saying the answer was, I said to her, you realize that 18 years from right around now, there will be a young man walking across the stage at his high school graduation, cap and gown probably, looking to an aside to the audience to find his mom and dad now 18 years older than they are today, giving them a wink and a nod that thanks for probably getting me here and knowing that this $10,000, and by the way, we calculated it was going to be $17,800 at that point in time, never mind what it could have been in higher interest rates. And I said, what you did is you gave them and him 18 years of peace and confidence by leveraging the gift that his grandmother wanted him to have. That's what you did today. You did not open an account. And it was powerful. And that's how I feel about it. So compassion is knowing people's story, being permitted to be in their life, and then listen long enough to respond to it and have the privilege of helping them along. I don't have any trouble trying to put compassion in the middle of banking because it is exactly what we do as servant leaders. Richard, I've got to say, you are one of the master storytellers. I appreciate it. We got stories all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually really interesting because at one point I want to talk about how you transitioned from chairman CEO of US Bank Corp over to Make-A-Wish and your board positions, et cetera. I want to shift into your leadership at US Bank. Under your leadership as CEO and chairman of US Bank, the firm was repeatedly recognized as one of the most ethical companies in the world earning the United Way's Spirit of America Award, the Ethosphere Institute's recognition as one of the world's most ethical corporations. What do you credit that to? Everybody in the company who who earned it, but creating an environment and a spirit of this need to give back. And so it's philanthropy at its highest level, even in a business scenario. What I'd like to say is we were lucky and blessed to be called out for some of those things. But I'll tell you what, Ross, when you think about really what a company stands for, it simply is the people collection of the people in the company standing for whatever that brand might mean. And there are companies that have failed miserably in the last decade because their culture let them down. Not the people in the company. Many of them had nothing to do with that. They were doing a great job, but the culture, the framework was too weak and it didn't stand up. I do remember that when I took over as CEO, I flipped the triangle and the triangle was this. My predecessor was very successful, said shareholders first, customers, of course, next, and employees will, will get the job done. And I flipped it and said, employees first by far, who then will be inspired to do remarkable things for customers who will then be satisfied and the shareholder will reward us because we're better than somebody else at it. And that simple reversal was all the same parts and pieces in a different order. 
was actually playing the leverage game. So I often said, I don't care about the training program so much at the bank. I care more that people are want to be capable of doing the job they're doing, whatever training is available to them. But if they're satisfied and love what they do, customer will feel it, shareholder will, will benefit. What's core to all of that is that people believe that you trust them. And the element of trust comes in, I trust you until I don't, as opposed to you must earn my trust. And I'm done. That's the paradigm shift. And so you must often look at yourself and say, which view do I have in my general life's work? How will I lead my team? Because if you're the former, people will disappoint you on occasion, but they will overwhelm you with what more is capable because they can do things you never thought they could if you give them the latitude. And if you're the, the latter and you believe people need to earn their trust, they will over time, but you've created boundaries and limitations. And you've also indicated that I don't take at face value what I hear or learn or see. I need to have evidence and proof along the way. I think the former is a compassionate, to use your word, environment, um, but I've seen it work both ways. I just think you go further when you trust people. Think of the carrot versus a stick, but I kind of hate that, so I didn't want to do it. That's so interesting. John Maxfield of The Motley Fool said back in 2017 that, quote, over 500 banks failed during and after the financial crisis. And the banks that either didn't fail or didn't get acquired by better positioned banks right. really struggled in the financial crisis and lost a lot of money, like Bank of America, Citigroup. U.S. Bank Corp was one of those few banks that didn't fail, wasn't picked up for pennies of, of the dollar by a competitor, didn't suffer enormous losses, and actually emerged from the financial crisis in a stronger competitive position right. relative to its peers than when it entered it, end quote. How did U.S. Bank navigate the Great Recession so successfully? What was that like at the helm? Tell us about that. It's so unimpressive, but it's simple. It's called the grandmother quotient. So the grandmother quotient is this. If you have anything to sell, to give into the hands of a consumer or a business that you wouldn't want your grandmother to have, get it off the shelf. And don't you dare sell that. Now, I'll pause and explain to you my grandmother. I used to call the mother's quotient when I was first coming up through the ranks, trying to explain to people what doing the right thing looks like. And I was described to somebody later on, you know, Richard, everybody doesn't like their mom and dad. It just doesn't happen to be there. But no one doesn't like grandma. Just don't. <laughs> and so even in our product conversations, we would use sometimes the phraseology, would you want your grandmother to have this? And if the answer was no, then let's, let's either figure out what we have to do differently or get rid of it. So back to John Maxfield. We did not sit around. And my successor right now is one of the best bankers in America. And he and I were together on these conversations. And we would not sit around and say, let's not do subprime mortgage because it's wrong. Or let's not take a flyer on you know, quick applications that take you know, one signature because it's wrong. We actually did it pragmatically because we couldn't repeat it. And a shareholder who has a life ahead of them to accomplish decides to put X dollars into your company with the hope that it'll be a better investment than it would be somewhere else. And it better be bigger than it was when I gave it to you when I need it. And along the way comes with, I want you to be better and stronger every quarter. And when you do things like some of the things that got banks in trouble, they weren't repeatable. They were a moment in time. They were simply pragmatically not sustainable. And we didn't want to have a company where we had three great quarters and then a reset quarter and then two struggling quarters and another great quarter. We never messed with the vagaries of opportunities that were going to be non-sustaining. That's why we never had any of those problems. We wasn't higher than now. It wasn't sitting around and deciding, you know, what's right ethically. It simply wasn't good business. 
And in accordance, when the world falls apart like that, you end up getting the benefits, again, because people trust you, and mostly because you won't put them in harm's way. And you won't take advantage when there's an opportunity that's probably too good to be true. I wish it was more, more provocative and more complicated, but it simply isn't. There is profundity in simplicity, something Always. that I say I often. Yeah. And for any entrepreneurs, founders, less aspiring entrepreneurs, aspiring fund managers listening, like, you know, oftentimes the best products, the best companies are born out of, why hasn't anyone done that yet? Or yeah. that just feels so obvious, right? <laughs> right? right. Those statements. I'd love to shift into a, a bit of a deeper conversation on leadership at the highest levels. What do you think makes a world-class CEO? I ask you this question because I have talked to hundreds of financial executives and Richard, you are oftentimes cited as someone that they look up to. I have been struck by how oftentimes you are referenced as a financial services CEO that people who are current top executives look to as a role model. That's nice to what, know. Yeah. And not trying to flatter you, not trying to put you on the spot there, just sharing my observations. We'd love to hear if you think there are any uniquely important qualities of world-class CEOs in financial services yeah. um, in comparison to other service and other industries. So what makes a world-class CEO and specifically in financial services, what do they need? Those are hard questions. Can I pivot to first to call what, what a number of world-class CEOs I used to work with were looking for in the best of employees? Sure. Interesting to the group. There's the business roundtable and there's the business council, and they're both cohorts of the top 100, 150 CEOs in America. One is more of a lobbying group. The other one's more of an education group where we get to gather and learn from each other. It was the latter. And we had a panel discussion on what makes the best employees, the best C-suite leaders in and around us. And there was no predetermined answer, but we created and crafted it during this conversation. This is probably seven years ago, maybe eight. And so to summarize, we all agree that when we all started in business, IQ was the driving feature of success. And so your credentials, the institution you had your higher ed, the GPA, clubs that you belong to, all very important part of the resume. Indeed, that's true. And then we thought maybe 10 years ago from that point, we thought, you know, it's evolving to EQ, way more provocative. Not only do you need to be smart enough, but you need to how to deal with people. You need to how to think through the circumstances. The facts may be the facts, but how you maneuver through them, how you handle circumstances, back to people, people on people. We all agreed that was it. EQ, wow, look at us, how provocative. You can't get it on a resume though. You have to get it in the interview. And then the last one on this date, and to my knowledge was not really coined as a phrase that's used a bit, quite a bit now was CQ, which was curiosity. And we all honed in with great resonance and consensus that we are mostly attracted to have around us curious people, period. And that is a risk of vulnerability because in part, a good CEO may look like someone who wants to run the place and have most everybody agree with them. A really, really good CEO wants to be around people who will challenge anything diplomatically and thoughtfully and get to the right answer because we know there aren't better choices. And so my long story is the best CEOs I've ever worked with were some of the ones that agreed you want the most curious of people around you and with the curious curiosity comes the willingness to tolerate dissension and question and challenge and look forward to it, but at the end to get full and absolute support, move forward as a team and walk out of the room with one answer. So number one, being courageous enough to have dissension of idea and thought. The more provocative view today 
not running a big company, but I'm running an organization, is the ability to have different people and different views around the table, different backgrounds around the table. It may look like DE&I, but in its most genuine form, it's, you would have it no other way. I want all kinds of people around us with all kinds of experiences and backgrounds and priorities and, and attributes so that all the decisions can look, the best chance of looking like the people we serve in financial industry is that people at the table of decision that look like the people we serve. So it's, you, you don't even have to be magnanimous to support it. You need to be practical, but a better CEO today authentically and genuinely would have it no other way but have highly diverse people around the table with the authority to make a decision. And then the last one I'll offer up as an example, as a story, the best CEOs I know are the ones who know they don't know everything and don't think they ever will. And I remember about seven years ago when there was a rash of racial motivated murders across the country. There were seven cities and we had six, we had large presence in six of the seven. And I had heard from some of my team that our employees were getting stressed with kind of the strife in the urban markets across the country. We all were. And could we do anything about it? And so we had at the time 24 major city presidents in the bigger metropolis of those cities, six of which had this problem. And I called all 24 presidents together, which is not a usual cohort. And I said, look, I've heard that we need to do something here. I don't know what we should do. So I'm going to ask each of you guys and women to pull together as many people in your market as you can to have a listening hour. Let's talk about it. Let's share our concerns. Let's hear what we think. And I said, but here's the deal. You do not have to run it to a conclusion. You don't have to have an answer and you don't have to have a solve. I said, and I'm doing that right now with you. I have no idea what the right thing is. I just know we need to try something. We need to listen. And I want to hear from you. And at the end of the day, I said, I need to start the next week. And if any of you are so uncomfortable with the ambiguity, a leader has been taught to manage and have a goal and have the answer before it's known and make sure people leave with a conclusion. If you're not comfortable, I'll join you. Two of the 24 did. I joined them. We had this wonderful set of conversations. We had a little bit of feedback that was ability for us to do work on. But at the end of the day, we just listened. We didn't play boss. We didn't play, barely played convener. We certainly played summarizing person. And the company was better for it. And I have used that style now more and more because it's vulnerable. It's got a little bit of, a lot of risk into it. But it's truly abdicating your position of authority to all parties on topics that everyone has an equal voice. There's no hierarchy on talking about strife and dissension in communities. Nobody's better than anybody else at that. There's no VP or vice chair for that. Let's get together and let's talk equally. And I think the last part of world-class CEO is to be vulnerable. That was my story. I appreciate you sharing the importance of vulnerability. Another thing that I think sometimes gets scoffed at, right? As soft, Wait, as not as having weak. a place. Right. As weakness. I wanted to shift a bit into culture. I have a bunch of questions I'd love to try to get through quickly here. On culture, at U.S. Bank, we've had a number of leaders at U.S. Bank involved in scholars of finance, right? After you initially really got plugged in with us, with Andy Ciceri, right? Who's been a keynote multiple times. Reba Dominsky, who Andy reached out to, right? To help make U.S. Bank our first ever founding partner. Gosh, Gunjan Kedia. Katie Lawler. (laughs) Tim yeah. Welsh, Katie right. Lawler, Gunjan Kedia, Terry Dolan. Katie's right. on our board. Tim's a major donor. Terry and Gunjan have been speakers. Like there's just, there's a lot of U.S. Bank scholars of finance yeah. connectivity. You are our first founding partner. 
I want to talk about U.S. Bank culture a little bit. U.S. Bank as a firm has frequently been cited as one of the best places to work in America, not just in financial services, being placed in the top 10% of Forbes ranked major employers. How do you think U.S. Bank accomplished this? What was the secret sauce? First of all, let's give credit. It's the current group that's doing that right now because you're reading current data and they deserve all of that. I've been gone five years. I will say, though, that long before COVID, we used the phrase wellness, employee wellness. Because I still got to lead during COVID, it became the watchword. If any company isn't using that word, I'd be surprised because it's no longer culture. It's no longer happiness. It's no longer safety and satisfaction. It's, it's wellness. How, how are people? How are you holistically? Are you okay? Are you feeling safe enough, sound enough, informed enough, and able to keep leading and do what you need to do. So I would say that the idea of use the word compassion, I would have brought it back here, but the idea of asking people to be their best self and realize that one third of their life is at the bank and realizing we can inform as much of their well-being as they can at home or while they're sleeping, it's pretty powerful. I'll unpack that for a minute. Eight hours of sleep, eight hours of work, eight hours of neither. When we were trying to help a smoking cessation problem with the American Cancer Society 15 years ago, we agreed that what they do at home is going to be less powerful than the incentives and the peer pressure they will get at work because work is the more important of those three eight-hour increments. And so we at work have an obligation to be the other family that can hold ourselves accountable, lean in with each other, lock arms, and be there in a way that even a family can't. And so I'll end by saying a great place to work is where people feel there's family. And I'm not being corny here. The Gallup organization does 30,000 company surveys a year. And they have a 12-question survey. It's called Q12. And I think question seven or eight, I wish I remember the number, just says, my best friend is at work. And people thought this preposterous. First of all, best friends are probably not at work, or are they? And what does that matter to my satisfaction in working here. Turns out it's the litmus question because people actually do think of work as the other place to have family. And so best companies, I think, are the ones that treat each other like family, expect each other to stand up like family, probably bicker sometimes like family, but will always be there for you well beyond the job description and the eight hours when they need it. And that is where healthy companies come from, I think. Thanks for sharing. I'd love to shift from financial yeah. services into the nonprofit space. You had a long career in financial services, were CEO chairman at US Bank. You serve on a number of Fortune 100 boards today. After you left US Bank and stepped out of your chairman CEO role, you shortly after that became the CEO of Make-A-Wish America. I think for a lot of people who are retiring and you know looking for their next thing, I would imagine they'd call that a success to like be able to run one of the largest charities in the country while sitting on several of the largest boards in the world. I'm just curious to ask what inspired you to make the switch from U.S. Bank to Make-A-Wish or just pick up Make-A-Wish after you had decided to move on from U.S. Bank? Well, thanks for the framing because it was none of those. My friends and family know that when I was about 30 years old and I'm 64 today, I had declared to everybody that I love banking. And if I'm lucky enough to get through a full career and have any capacity, I would love to actually run a not-for-profit. My other option was to be a pastor. That was the other thing I wanted to be when the, when the bottom fell out at the Air Force Academy. And so I felt that banking actually was a mission of helping people get through their life. And I felt very good about that. 
but I also knew that I wanted one more shot at first derivative. And so in my time, Ross, at the bank, I had 11 unique not-for-profit boards service. And by the way, for those listening, by all means, find a not-for-profit you care about, offer your time and your talent, your financial support if you can, and make that part of your life right now. You have to wait, don't, don't wait for the moment to come. We are desperate for smart business people and particularly high integrity financial people because we don't usually get that in not-for-profit, but I digress. In addition to that, I wonder how different it would be to run it than to just show up every 90 days as a board member. I underestimated the difference. It's a much more difficult job than I thought because mission is replaced by shareholders. So shareholders, I should say, replaced by mission. And mission is a little bit more personal. And much as I woke up every day at the bank and wanted to make sure the shareholders felt that they had placed their investment in the right person and the right group of people, I wake up every morning here thinking we've got to get all these wishes granted. We've got to make sure we do it the right way. And so my bottom line is I transitioned because it was a 30-year goal. But what I did was when I retired, I had not started the search and I just let the search happen. I didn't choreograph it. And Make-A-Wish came on its own to me on August 1st of the year that I retired from the bank. And it was this serendipity that was just, for me, the perfect combination. So I had always intended it. I had no predilection. Remember I said no goal, just a direction. I had that direction for 30 years. I didn't have the name of where I would be getting off the off ramp and it turns out to be Make-A-Wish and it's simply one of the best things I've ever done. But I'm gonna close here. We have a bit of a lesson to teach. I had no idea how lucky I was to work in a country called America where not-for-profits were keeping me from having to do other things that were less savory. Right this minute, we're doing this podcast and it's, I'll give it away, it's almost four o'clock Pacific time. And right now there are endless charities that are people who went to work to those charities today while we're doing what we do. And they are giving all of their best time and talent to do some of the most remarkable things like read to kids who can't see and drive vans to people with no arms or legs to their doctor appointment, to go visit people who haven't had a person speak to them in 24 hours. And if it were not for those charities, include Make-A-Wish as one of them, none of us in the business world would have the permission to have the freedom to do what we do, knowing that the rest of the world is being taken care of. And I think of it as a big fabric with a bunch of stitching and a bunch of quilts and not-for-profit in the United States, at least, is the invisible stitching that keeps everything working and together. And if you haven't found one, find it. If you haven't hugged the one you're part of, hug them, because this is a remarkable, unique part. I said America twice, now three times, because it's very unique to the United States. And it's what makes us, in many ways, the most special. And business can thrive because other things are being handled. Richard, I've never thought about the socioeconomic system and machinery like that. You know, a bit of irony being that Scholars of Finance is a nonprofit. Maybe a good segue into another question, you know, maybe a, a shameless plug for all those financial leaders listening uh, to, choose SOF, to, choose SOF as <laughs> to choose SOF as their nonprofit, right? I remember back at our second Scholars of Finance Symposium, when this was just a couple of college kids and recent grads with an idea, you know, a desire to be in finance, be successful, and also be purposeful and principled. You grabbed my co-founder, Ryan Quinlivan, and I, after your keynote panel, kind of pulled us in close. And I never forget this. And I quote this often. You said, gentlemen, finance needs this. Right. You need to do this for more students and more universities and more cities. And I'll help make sure it happens. Just right. promise me you'll commit to growing this. 
And since then, you've helped us go from zero to one. You've been generous with your time. You're one of our advisory board members. You're one of our alpha investors, a donor of ours. You've been a dear mentor to me. You've spoken to our team and our students a number of times. Can you share with our audience and our listeners, what about scholars of finance struck you back then and continues to strike you today? Why do you think the world and finance needs SOF? First of all, because I love the format and the way you set it up. And I love the institution of getting into the universities and college campuses to be side by side with the academic education that would otherwise happen either way. So scholars of finance, by bringing integrity and character into any topic, by the way, it could be any area of, of focus, is even more special in financial because financial services are all about trust. And where it works brilliantly, people are viscerally supportive and trusting of their bankers, and they do think they help them get through their life, and they wouldn't trade them for anybody. But there have been, sadly, more than a few examples where that trust has been broken. And it usually comes back to some malfeasance in the books or in the order of investing or some manner that takes people to feel that not all financial people are at the highest level. I'd like to think they are maybe maybe one day. So what you've created here, Scholars of Finance, is I'm going to use the word loosely, the minimum standard of certification that the people that we will be dealing with will have that minimum level of integrity and character to always do what's right. And then the maximum is they will lead others to do it through their example. And that's where the leverage comes in. I would have said, when you asked me the question about the best CEOs, they'll be the ones who will also say, I want people around me who are both curious and of high ethics and quality. That's why I wanted to get away from IQ and EQ. Scholars of Finance fits right into that next piece. Curious people ask questions. Curious people in the C-suite make sure that the answer we came up with isn't the easy one. It's the one that we know is best because we checked all the other alternatives. And Scholars of Finance has this ability to educate our young people, many of them young, maybe some going back to school, while you're learning to be a professional in the financial service industry, we're asking you to do it exactly the right way. And there's always a story, and here's my newest story. This is powerful. In the boards that I sit on and those that I know of, in the last couple of years, something profoundly interesting has happened in the human resource evaluation methodology of corporate America. And to varying degrees, what I'm going to say is in different stages of rollout across business. Up until a few years ago, you get your goals, you have your expectations, and we measure at the end of the year on whether you met your goals. Ross, some companies have gone so far, but most of some, some in the middle, which is, I will evaluate you on your goal achievement, but I will evaluate you as well on how you achieve them, the way you achieved them, the honesty, the ethics, the leadership the teaching of others, the mentoring. They're doing it right, not just once, but for the sustaining long-term. And right now there is one company I know that the entire thing is, here's your goals, but we're gonna measure you on how you got them because it's your influence on others that will matter. Some are doing some other version. My friend, Scholars of Finance, ahead of its curve, perhaps right now hitting the curve, but when people in financial services lead and manage people's wealth, and lead decisions that will build buildings and skyscrapers and help move things from one side of the world to the other. It's not just that they did it well, it's that they did it the right way. And they did it with the integrity and the honesty and we'll use humility as well because it's a quite a powerful, heady thing to be moving money like that and changing the world. So that's what I love about Scottish Methodology. It was ahead of its game when you and I first met and talked about it. 
It's now perhaps one of the catalysts that's helping people see it. And you know how much I would love to have on every resume, a scholars of finance credential that would tell me all things equal. I just met five people. I want the one that's been through the curriculum and has been certified as the kind of honest, honest broker that I'm looking for in my organization because that's the CQ I'm looking for. And that's the integrity doing what's right, no matter what, when no one's looking, because that's what's minimum table stakes. So you fit right into my scheme of what I believe is important. And you're, as usual, ahead of the curve here. And everyone who participates is going to be a remarkably deeper, stronger, better financial service leader and human being. Richard, thank you so much for the inspiring words. I would say that is the perfect note to end on. But I just want to add one thing that is to anyone listening, I think the most important thing that Richard just shared is the importance of all of us being humble, high integrity leaders. And Richard, I think that you so powerfully paint the picture of the potential impact that our decisions make. So just want to say thank you. We're running up on time here. You've been super generous with your time, Richard. Thanks again for coming on and hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you, Ross. I'm proud of what you're doing, proud of this organization. And if you're listening in because you're interested enough to continue to develop your own skills and to get the best practices that are out there, then thank you for letting Scholars Finance be part of it. I'm just honored to know that we have something that people want to learn about and you will get my best forever on this. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Richard. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.